1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest in this episode is Catherine Doge Roth, the author of Signing the Body Marks on Skin in Early Modern France. And the book was published by Routledge in 2020. Hi there, Catherine. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, Catherine, can I just ask you, you know, let our listeners know where you are and how you've been doing? through these months and months, more than a year now of uh, global pandemic?
0: Well, I mean, I think it's been such a hard time for so many people, not only because of COVID, but also because of all this relentless racial violence uh, that we're enduring as a country here in the US. It's all been so heavy and so difficult that I think I just feel very, I'm very conscious of this Privileged position that I and my family occupy in in all these struggles, you know. Here I am in Maine, where we can get outside and walk in the woods and by the sea and enjoy that sort of uh, you know uh, soul cleansing kind of time. And uh, but we did actually start the the COVID pandemic in Paris when I was on leave um, there with oh, my family, wow. and so we we spent time in that in the lockdown situation. But um, there were there were also you know, COVID silver linings. Uh, we had a daughter who, college age daughter who was there for winter term, who stayed with us uh, for a lot longer through the summer. And, you know, we took these long walks in Paris with no tourists in front of beautiful monuments. And, you know, so there were, there were some very odd, but very um, special times too, I think. So yeah, just very conscious of how fortunate we are and and how many other people are out there facing far greater challenges. Catherine, I always
1: ask people uh, on this podcast, this French Studies podcast, you know, why France? How did you uh, come to be a scholar of, of France and of early modern France?
0: I think the French part of things happened a little bit by accident. I um, was in college and became a history major and was still studying French that I'd sort of done in high school and um, Ended up going abroad for a term in my freshman year to France, uh, and then again, decided to spend the entire year abroad, my junior year, in uh, Caen, in Normandy, Mm. and I think those experiences were really kind of what sealed the deal. (laughs) You know, history was always my first love, but then um, French helped me orient, I think, that interest, Um, and... I ended up actually returning after my undergraduate. I returned to France for a year where I had friends and and ended up enrolling in graduate school and applying in graduate to graduate school in French literature actually instead of history. I mean I might have I might have gone through either door, I think, to do what I want to do today, but um, ended up being a, a literary scholar first, but still really maintain this interdisciplinary kind of work and and interest in in everything that I do. And
1: the subject of this book, Catherine. I mean, I've said to you a few times on email, and you know, before we started recording, I'm, I'm a little bit jealous of the subject <laughs> of this book, even though I am nowhere near a, a scholar of early modern France and could not have done any of this work. But yeah, how did you come to, to marks on skin as, uh, as the subject of this project?
0: This all started way back when I was doing my dissertation when I was working on demonic possession in 17th century convent cases. Mm-hmm. Um, it really started with my encounter with Jeanne Desanges, who was Joan of the Angels, who was the prioress of an Ursuline convent in Loudun, France, in the early 17th century. And her story really captivated me. Uh, she and many of her Ursuline sisters had experiences of what people were calling demonic possession, the the Loudin case is is rather infamous for having become a very political uh, case. It ultimately led to the death of a local priest, Urbain Grandier, who was accused as a witch of having brought on the possession. And Jean Desange had been Really demonized, so to speak, <laughs> really criticized, degraded, both by contemporary sources and, and also in the historical record and and in its popular the popularization of this story as well. So, mm. Algus Huxley wrote a wrote a novel in the nineteen fifties called The Devils of Loudun that inspired this really horrifying nineteen seventy one film by Ken Russell called The Devils. Um, had Vanessa Redgrave playing Jeanne des Anges. So she she gets this really bad rap. (laughs) And it just didn't seem to make sense to me as I was reading her autobiography and reading about her experience of the events at Loudun. What happens in in these cases in Loudun and also uh, in further cases in Louvier and Auxonne are women religious who are having their bodies inscribed by demons, so literally wounded or written on uh, by demons. And it was a tradition in exorcism to have an exit sign, um, a sign by which a demon would mark I have left this person's body. Mm. And the, the priest would insist on, you know, having this kind of sign. But normally these were really transitory kinds of signs, you know, a candle being blown out or a window breaking or something like that. And what happens in Loudin is this really... Amazing and troubling um, writing on the skin instead. So, Jeanne receives this cross on her forehead. When one of her demons leaves her body, she receives marks on her side from another. And then she receives the marks of um, the members of the Holy Family. So, Maria is one of the Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. And then the name of Francois de Sales, who was an important spiritual leader at the time, on her hand. And and she goes goes around France basically displaying this hand that is very much a relic and and so I was interested in what was going on with these women having these marks on their skin and and trying to understand that and what I found in trying to reread Jean desange's story was that these women were really in trying to re inscribe themselves into uh, what I like to call sort of the domain of the sacred. In other words, they were demonically possessed, associated with the devil, associated with all these evil, uh, horrendous things. And and through their body marking, they were actually trying to align themselves with other women self-inscribers at the time Mm. and earlier, um, who were inscribing their bodies with words, names, stigmata, as signs of their devotion. So that that is really the the point uh, of departure for the project. I got interested in, in in these signs on skin. And from there, in order to understand what was going on in Loudin, I had to look at the theorization of the devil's mark, um, which is also a new kind of sign on skin that we begin to see beginnings of in the 15th century, but really develops as a sign that is recognizable and then becomes an evidentiary sign in the witch trials mm-hmm. during the course of the 16th century. Jeanne Desanges' signs get compared to all sorts of other kinds of marks on skin. You know, People either criticizing her or supporting her will talk about her signs and compare them to tattooing going on among native peoples of North America. Uh, they'll compare them to alchemical signs that people write on their skin. Um, others will compare compared her markings to um the tattoos on the arms of Jerusalem pilgrims. So so from that from that sort of point of departure, I started looking at all these different kinds of signs on skin.
1: One of the things that struck me, you know, coming into the book, Catherine, was this point that you make. You know, this is a book about the forms and meanings of corporeal inscription in this early modern period in France, so from the late 16th through the 18th century. And you make this point early on about the fact that inscription, writing, things being written on the body, that these are things, and I'm not an early modern, historian of the early modern period, but I definitely felt implicated in this. (laughs) Um, Not that it was an accusation, but it's something you pointed out, that that language of inscription of writing and writing the body, is there in the scholarship, but that there's been relatively little attention to the the material <laughs> writing on the body. And I just, that really kind of blew my mind. And I guess I wanted to to find out a little bit about how this project emerged for you or developed for you methodologically, like as somebody who's interested in the history of the body, how that idea of it's not that your book is the literal. I mean, it, it is, but it's not just the literal. You're reading these things in terms of representation and, and, and through other methodologies and, and approaches. But you are kind of responding to a body of scholarship, a body, there I go again, a body of scholarship <laughs> that has used writing an inscription. I mean, I don't know how many times I use the word inscribed in my own work.
0: Do you, do you know what I mean? Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm asking you? <laughs> oh, it, I, th- I think it's something that that had always um, I mean, it, this is sort of the the kind of discourse, uh, all of us who went to graduate school and were sort of steeped in the Foucauldian, you know, kind of mindset um, around inscribing the body. You know, all of that, all of that was very much um Alive as a metaphor for me as a graduate student, and 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 I think that uh, I used it countless times myself to talk about metaphorical kinds of writing the body or inscribing the body, um, and and so it was really. I, I mean, I, I actually remember a conversation with one of my thesis advisors when I said I said I said to her, you know, has anybody actually written about actual? Inscribing the body, like as you say, the literal, um, and and I think it's just really with work that I've done and work that has influenced me around cultural materialism and and really the, the history of materiality um, that that intersected with this interest in the idea of the inscribed body that, that that took me there. I was really taken by
1: this phrase somewhere in the introduction, and then it appears. Maybe elsewhere in the book, the the cultural history of skin and the idea of skin as a privileged surface. You talk about it, and the sources that you're looking at in the book kind of deal with it as this inside outside, public private, and again as something that I hadn't maybe I've thought about in some way in my life, and that I hadn't really thought about the the way that skin operates as a site. Uh, I think you use the word the term liminal at some point. Can you tell us a little bit about? skin as a, as a kind of object of the book.
0: Yeah. It, and it's, it's funny um, you ask that because it it's not a book that started out being about skin. And in fact, when I started this project, there wasn't a lot being talked about around skin and it has since become this incredibly hmm. vibrant and Fascinating field of scholarship. There are so many amazing scholars out there working on skin per se, um, and um, the many meanings and um, and uses of skin. I guess I might say, um, you know, across across the board. But in the, even in the earlier modern period, there's just some absolutely wonderful people um, who are looking specifically at skin uh, as their object of study. Mm great project out of King's College London run by Evelyn Welsh who that is called the Renaissance Skin Project that I've had the good fortune of being involved with and there are many people out there uh, focusing on skin my collaborator on a volume I'm working on right now um, Craig Kozlowski is in the middle of a very large project around the history of skin and there are many others out there as well so skin kind of came to the fore as as this book developed but this the the the, genesis, the this book was much more focused on marks on skin mm. what it means to actually mark the skin and what these different kinds of marks on skin mean to those marking and to those receiving the mark mm-hmm. I really
1: like the way where way you're kind of addressing what the book doesn't do. And I as someone who is struggling to write a book myself right now, I think how authors handle that, convey that to readers is real important. You know, a book can't do everything. It can't be about everything. They shouldn't try to be about everything. You also talk about when it comes to marks on skin, you explain at the outset of the project that this book is not going to deal with all of marks on skin and then you made yeah. decisions. It sounds like some of those decisions came out of what came out of the case of demonic possession that fascinated you. But but you also kind of have this. You draw a line, huh? <laughs> this is going to happen to me throughout this interview, isn't it? Where I'm just going to keep saying things that seem like I'm making <laughs> funny notes about your project. <laughs> that you draw a line between you know t- marks on skin that are that come from the outside or believed to have come from the outside, imposed on the skin by by people and things, or are believed to have been imposed by supernatural forces, uh, ways that skin may have been marked by supernatural forces like the devil. Or... And then there are these other types of markings on skin that you don't talk about. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what the book doesn't do in along those lines?
0: Sure. Um, I mean, I think in in drawing the line, as you have said... <laughs> you know, part of it is, of course, always a practical decision, right? You can't talk about everything in your book. And this book could have been, you know, three times as long, it was already um, a pretty unwieldy corpus in in that it was really five different sets of literature and uh, areas of inquiry. Um, Mm -hmm. Each chapter had its own primary literature as well as secondary literature. There are people who are fully experts on stigmata alone or um, on uh, judicial history or travel literature. Mm -hmm. So already I was really managing a bit of a monster. I mean, I could have written a whole chapter on birthmarks. And I would have loved to do that. And I'm now pursuing some of the sort of pieces of that that I that I wasn't able to include in the book. But I decided to just put a little bit about it in the introduction, um, and and uh, concentrate on these two different chapters on tattooing in two different contexts: um, the judicial branding, uh, and then these two chapters that turn around uh, demonology and questions around the supernatural marking of the skin. So. Um, I did follow the lead, though, of my 17th century theologian, um, the Jesuit, Theophile uh, Renaud, who he, he says in his introduction, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm not going to talk about marks on skin that come from the inside. In other words, he's not going to talk about uh, the marks on skin from syphilis. Uh, he's not going to talk about birthmarks either, because he feels that those come, you know, those are produced from the inside, on the inside of the woman's body. They're not coming out of, they're not, they're not being forced upon um, the surface of the skin from the outside. So I kind of took his lead as perhaps a, you know, a bit, a bit of an indicator as the direction of the direction I might go in, in limiting my topic.
1: Well, just to kind of follow up in terms of the parameters of the book and periodization and some of these other things. So the book goes from the, 16th century, the late 16th century through the 18th century, as I mentioned earlier. And you cover the French context and the context of the French Atlantic colonies, or what was known as New France at the time. And I just wondered, you know, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that, about not so much the decision to do those things, <laughs> because that's in your field, but but about the specificity, I guess, of marks on skin in early modern France. And, you know, this time period, what it is about this period in particular that is, you know, that, that typical historian question, like, mm-hmm. different from the period that came before and the one that comes after. And then, yeah, the French and the French Atlantic colonial context, if you could say something about how you understand the specificity of
0: the temporal and, and geographic uh, bounds of the project. Sure. I mean, I think I I say in my introduction, um, you know, that there is this way in which, you know, our areas of training influence uh, what we're able to see or what we're able to look at, (laughs) right? So that France has been my focus for a very long time. And so it was natural to me to be looking at sources coming out of France and coming out of the French colonies. Uh, And I think that many of the phenomena that I document in the French and French Atlantic context are going on in other, country, other European countries as well. Criminal branding, uh, the branding of convicts um, as an administrative mark was taking place throughout Europe. France may have been one of the initiators, but they, uh, but this was something that, that was going on in every city and uh, countries in Europe had their different systems of marking criminals. As far as the interest in looking at New France, I think that there's just there was just no way for me to think about limiting my study to continental France uh, when so much of um, the French attention in the 17th century was towards what was happening on the other side of the Atlantic um, between what the French were engaged in um, with the slave trade uh, in the French Antilles, and also um, the whole colonial project that they were engaged in in what they called New France in the North in the North American colonies. So. I think any sort of, um, line between those is a very artificial one. Mm -hmm. Uh, there were, there was just too much, there was just too much energy, uh, and interest, uh, going toward, toward, uh, thinking about what was happening on the other side of the Atlantic at the time. Um, and that in turn defined practices, uh, in France, uh, and influenced, um, thinking in France about so many things that I just think it's an artificial boundary to draw, um, and in terms of the periodization of the project, Catherine? I think that what is going on in the early modern world, um, I mean, what really shocked me and, and struck me in all of the reading I was doing was that every time that um, a thinker or writer would be talking about one kind of mark, they would have to refer to at least you know, two or three other kinds of marks. And whether these were marked, other kinds of cutaneous marks, other kinds of marks on skin, or whether these were... Um, commercial marks, um, uh, badges, insignia, uh, coats of arms, all of these kinds of marking practices, the the practice of print, the practice of engraving, all of these practices sort of give you this, this picture of um, a period that is absolutely fascinated with attempting to ground identity and uh, express power and control through uh, marks uh, that are either worn on clothing or marks that are worn on skin, and so this the, the thinkers of this period, as they're inventing the devil's mark, uh, reinventing convict branding for the first time, um, coming up with this whole new, you know, uh, demonic uh, sign of uh, exit from the body, they 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 just seem obsessed with mar- marking. And, and with somehow grounding some sort of stability or some sort of um, uh, permanence, I think, uh, uh, into the body itself. Um, and I think it has a lot to do with the fact that this is a period of extraordinary upheaval, you know, cultural, religious, political, um, that there is this drive, it seems, and it's of course elusive uh, and never fully successful, but there's this drive to uh, ground uh, something in within the skin itself.
1: So, in terms of um, the structure of the book, Catherine, you know, you talked about how the project emerged from really what what kind of is centered in chapter two: the the cases of possession in the 17th century convents that that we've talked about a bit already. Um, how did you kind of think about putting the book together? You know, what's working sort of chronologically, sort of geographically? Like, that's always a tricky thing. Uh, and and I wonder, yeah. you know, how you sorted that out, what, what you thought needed to come first. And then, you know, whether you kind of think of the book as having, I, I feel like reading it, the book had an arc, but I'd like to know what, how you think of the arc of the, of the book.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think my biggest concern with this project was that I felt for a while there, like I had these very separate, very different case studies. I was, as I said, in very different geographies for um, each of these chapters uh, for the most part. Um, I, you know, I was in New France uh, looking at, uh, the tattooing among indigenous uh, Canadians and Native Americans. Uh, I was all the way in Palestine, you know, looking at uh, Holy Land tattoos. And, and and so for a while there, I was a little bit concerned that it wouldn't hold together as a book. I think that the order that I chose for the chapters um, is roughly chronological, Um you know, to understand what's going on in Luddan with the with the demons marks on on these women's skin, you have to understand the Devil's Mark, which is an earlier development. And so it made sense, uh, and I realized pretty quickly that I was going to need a whole chapter on the Devil's Mark in order to set up uh, the the chapter that would follow it with the tattooing. Originally, those two chapters were one big chapter. <laughs> And a very unwieldy chapter (laughs) that I mean, what I do do in in the chapter on marking in the context of North America, this idea of people who are writing about Native American skin marking, um, seeing that. Initially as a sign of extraordinary difference, but then um, realizing or attempting to read tattooing as similarity, actually, with Europeans. And so they'll go back to early European peoples, such as the Picts and the Pictons, who are reputed to have marked their bodies in some way Mm. Um, in order to make a connection between the French colonizers and um, the Native Americans and indigenous Canadians who they are colonizing and, and sort of a, a backward kind of uh, justification for uh, the assimilation of these peoples into the French state. So that use one of the symbols that they use um, and refer the reader constantly back to are the tattoos on the arms of Jerusalem pilgrims. So they, um, it was this point of comparison that that initially had these two chapters together. In other words, the 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 fact that they were they were actually looking for similarity when you thought that they were talking about difference, and then um, that the fact that this was a point of comparison, this Jerusalem tattoo, I wanted to understand those two together. In the end, these ended up to be separate chapters because. Um, First of all, the material in both of them was just far too rich to be able to keep them keep them uh, in in one chapter, and and I was able to do a lot more with each of the topics. I think by separating them out, the piece on branding um, was something that I had pursued sort of separately and um, felt incredibly important to include both because um, of uh, the very different kind of marking that it allowed me to explore, this idea that the state would be imposing their sign upon the skin of convicts, uh, sort of claiming them as their own, um, marking them as a possession of the state, and also because of what was going on um, with the Atlantic slave trade and the importance of branding and other kinds of marking of the skin of enslaved Africans uh, at the time as well. It it ended up coming together, but it wasn't necessarily, um, there was no master plan at the beginning.
1: In that first chapter of the book, Catherine, Seals of Satan, Demonologists and the Devil's Mark, I was really fascinated with the way that the work that you're doing in that chapter Intersects with what my very limited knowledge is of the existing scholarship on witchcraft and religious questions and questions around the devil um, in this period from the late 15th through the 17th century. So, I guess I wanted to ask you, since we've already talked about the chapter in various ways, maybe just to zoom in on this idea of how you're making an intervention. You know, not just in terms of how we think about the body in this, during this period, but in in that kind of literature. And you know, as you said, each one of the chapters of this book is ends up being in conversation with so many other literatures and fields. And that illumination of the history of witchcraft that you're doing in this chapter really struck me. So I wonder how you think about that.
0: I guess that was my big question: it was, okay, how can how can I intervene in this? And where I really saw something, um, new to talk about. And I'm not the only one to have talked about this. There are some other amazing scholars out there who have pointed to this as well, but, um, is the real relationship between the devil's mark and how it could be developed at this time. The fact that it was thought about in relationship to the baptismal mark, which was a very corporal, but very invisible kind of mark, Mm -hmm. um, supposedly placed on the Christian, uh, at birth or at baptism, how it was related to birthmarks, um, how it was related to signs of identity worn on clothing at the time. They often compare it to the branding of, uh, slaves in Greco Roman heritage, um, here the witch becomes the devil's slave and so gets branded. So I was really interested in trying to think about how were these demonologists, as they call themselves, how were they inventing this sign and what were they drawing on and what relationships were they making between this very new sign on witches that's going to take on extraordinary evidentiary value mm-hmm. um, and, and how this sort of climate of rising empiricism at the time and this need for material proof that was increasing, I think, in the in the judicial system, um, was really demanding some kind of a corporal sign for for the passage of the devil through the through the person's body for their commitment to the devil to be visible.
1: Throughout the book, Catherine, the notion that the bodies
0: that this episode is brought to you by sax.com.
1: Are gendered is is there. It's especially intense in chapter two, but it's certainly mm-hmm. there in the discussion of witchcraft and at other moments as well. And yeah, I guess I wanted to ask you about that. The the ways that you think about this as a as a project in the history of gendered bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even though this isn't maybe explicit all the time in the history of sexuality, um, yeah, like how you see yourself in conversation with, with those things and how gender was an important, um, kind of axis for you in the in the project.
0: Yeah, you know, and I think I think today, oftentimes discourse around tattooing in particular, but other kinds of body marking, is rather. Um, oriented toward men. Mm. Uh, the scholarship on the topic seems to be, you know, what we talk about, uh, or we think about tattooing in earlier periods, we think about sailors and we think about convicts and we, you know, all those stereotypes that Part of what I try to do in the book <laughs> um, is, uh, you know, pull those apart a little bit and question mm. those. It was really important to me. And and I think that hope this comes through, you know, both in the introduction and, and especially as you say in chapter two, is to think about women as um, inscribers of their own bodies and their own skin, because very often Certainly in the Renaissance discourse uh, and the medical thinking about women and their bodies, women were thought of as impressionable. They were thought of as soft and wet and easily impressed by uh, all sorts of um, outside influences. Right. Mm -hmm. And this in this. Goes from their bodies and their skin uh, and, and the skin of the fetuses they carry when they're pregnant as well, that are all able to be impressed um, with uh, various various images and signs, um, and their minds as well. Um, it's it's just it's just kind of fascinating how mm-hmm. um, this idea of impression gets gendered uh, in the period. that the sort of um, centerpiece for the gendering of Impressionability is is this idea that a woman's imagination can be impressed, so impressed by an image that she sees or something that she contemplates or something that she conjures up in her own head that she can then, if she is pregnant, she can then impress this image onto the baby that she's carrying. And so these are there are plenty of monster stories and and stories of uh children born with a certain mark upon them because uh Either um, their mother had an extraordinary desire f- to eat a certain fruit or meat, or you know, uh, and then this ends up on the fetus's skin. This ends up on the child's skin. So, blaming mothers since always. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course.
1: <laughs> when I was reading about that, I was
0: just, just like, "Oh my gosh!" It's just always. Been- <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean, that's really this. That's a, That's and that is a touchstone that. Thinkers about when they're thinking about the devil's mark, when they're thinking about stigmata, when they're thinking about all these other um, kinds of marking, they're always going to go back to that example of the maternal imagination um, and say, well, you know, stigma, critics of stigmata are going to say, well, just like a woman's imagination can imprint something on the body, a strong, you know, Devotional desire, a strong um, contemplation of uh, the object of Christ, can then imprint stigmata on the on the body. So they're they're trying to find a non uh, supernatural explanation, and their and their go to place is this idea of the maternal imagination. What was very interesting to me is when I was trying to make the argument that these women were taking agency and actually inscribing themselves, mm-hmm. uh, and that Jeanne Anges was changing the signs that were originally supposed to be on her skin and turning them into signs that were going to be able to re-inscribe her into the domain of the holy. So these, you know, signs that were clearly stigmatic in origin or names of holy, the holy family or Francois de Sales. People's reaction to that was, well, you can't prove that they were doing it. (laughs) Mm. You know, you can't say that they were doing it. So all I could do was put together the pieces around that, you know, to to, 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 um, To think about how other women who we know actually self-inscribed and who do not couch it in terms of my guardian angel came and renewed my marks, which is how Jean Desanges talks about it, um, but talk about their own experience of actually taking a hot iron and writing the name of Jesus in their chest. Um, So trying to put those into that tradition um, was, was important to me. I would like to come up, I've, I've come up with several examples that actually did not really end up in the book or that ended up in the book in just passing mm. um, of women who are practiced either tattoo artists um, or um women who are well-versed in alchemy, who are writing on bodies. Um, They aren't writing on their own bodies. They're writing on the bodies of men. And so I would be really interested to see other examples from this period of women um, actually inscribing that weren't in the context of um, a devotional gesture, but um, but outside of that. There's plenty of examples of very banal types of tattooing, like we know today of writing, you know, men who will have the name of their lover written on their arm or... Um, you know uh, that that sort that sort of uh, gesture and there's examples of lots of women doing that tattooing but not um, so much examples of women tattooing themselves outside of this outside of this uh, devotional context that Jean desanges operates in. It's
1: really fascinating and I think it makes me want to ask you about well, I don't know if this is one question or a few questions so just bear with me Catherine but the 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 theme of self-fashioning comes up in a couple of different ways in the book, Mm -hmm. or at least at different moments in this chapter on demonic possession. And then again, when you're speaking about pilgrims to the Holy Land and colonists who tattoo themselves inspired by indigenous markings, body markings uh, to kind of claim or assert a a hybrid identity after having spent time uh, in in the colonies. I'm not an early modernist, but I know enough to know (laughs) That self-fashioning is like one of you all's (laughs) things. So again, I'm gonna ask you about that. And then the other thing that um, that theme of self-fashioning and what you were just talking about, where women are inscribing themselves, has to do with that tension between and and how you're moving between and negotiating things that are being done to people's bodies or said about marks on people's bodies. And the idea of the people, the different people whose bodies are marked in your in your project, you know, having a certain type of agency, and that kind of brings us to sources, like how you're accessing what we're able to know, uh, what you were able to find out about people's bodies and markings, and how they're being talked about, and how they're talking about them their own. Uh, so yeah, it is a salad of questions, and you can just take any any part of what what I just what I just rambled about and
0: respond to any of that. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, um, let me think about that for a minute. Yes. A very important theme in thinking about, um, several different areas that I was examining, several different kinds of marking that I was examining from Jean des Anges, as I was just talking about to, um, you know, the pilgrim who's on the cover of the book here, uh, going to the Holy land and, and choosing, uh, his marks, uh, to bear, you know, there's so there, I guess I would say you're right that there's one part of the book that is about criminal branding. None of these convicts chose to have the letter V, um, you know, branded upon their, their shoulder or chose to, um, you know, have the fleur de lis put upon them. But, uh, and, and in a similar way, the devil's marking of witches is also this sort of Idea of passive, passive receipt. But one thing I think it is important is that um, you know I think the Renaissance really saw, and again, this is a very gendered concept, um, saw the body as this impressionable surface. So not only the female body, but also just the body in general. You know, subject to the forces of the universe, subject to God's marking, subject to marking by demons, um, a sort of passive surface. And what I think changes in this period. Is the idea that not only can something like the state, you know, impose its sign and um, use the capital that the body affords it, I think, to um, kind of project an image of its power. Um, but also individuals mm-hmm. can, you know, harness this idea of I can, in some way, use my body and use my body's surface as a means of expression, as a means of asserting a certain place within society. Again, very clear in the example of uh, the Ursuline nuns who were re-inscribing themselves, um, really casting themselves as a new identity. I think also I make the argument um, regarding the Jerusalem pilgrims that they were going to get tattooed for lots of different reasons, perhaps. And I talk about you know, tattoos as sort of simple souvenirs, and I talk about them as uh, useful passports. Um, but also um, what comes through, I think, in this desire for um, pilgrims when they come back uh, to, have their tattoos engraved in copper. In other words, um, making engravings of their tattoos that could then be reproduced uh, infinitely Mm. or having themselves painted in a portrait, which is, of course, the primary means of projection of um, selfhood and identity in this period uh, for a certain class of of people. Um, I think that it's very... Indicative of how important, um, you know, and they, they roll up their sleeves and show their tattoos uh, in these portraits, how important those markings were not only for either, uh, you know, as a memorial to their pilgrimage, but also to their status. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they were um, claiming a sort of identity for themselves as, look, I am i am a either devout christian um a uh, uh, brave adventurer i am someone who has ventured outside of um of uh, the confines of uh, france and seen new worlds and seen new uh new places i think the same thing goes for it's, a, it's slightly different for the um frenchmen who are being tattooed by um indigenous peoples in North America, they are very, I think in a very interesting fashion, creating a a very new hybrid identity for themselves as no longer really completely French, um, not um, completely something else, whatever that something is going to be. As inhabitants of North America, but they they are they are using their body projects to to create these hybrid identities where they will have um, iconography that is typical of uh, the the Jerusalem pilgrim set side by side with images of animals and plants and other um, kinds of iconography that's drawn very much from the indigenous traditions as well Mm -hmm. that they you know these people that they are working with and living uh, among. Um, So, so lots of different ways, I think, uh, that we can see skin marking being used for um, the expression of some kind of personal identity uh, and projection of that identity. And in that way, these kinds of marks on skin, those more than perhaps any of the others in that I deal with in the book are very resonant with with today and then the multiple
1: questions I asked you in there, just if you could say a little bit, Catherine, about your source material. Like sure. How are we learning about uh, these figures, like everything from state stuff to individual accounts? What What do you kind of, it's the range of things you're looking at in the book.
0: I'm looking at this from the point of view of a literary scholar, mm-hmm. first and foremost. So really interested in narrative Most of my sources actually are published sources, um, though I dip into manuscript sources here and there and borrow from archives here and there. Travel narratives uh, is where I'm getting the material uh, for New France and for the Holy Land. Pilgrims or military men, um, adventurers, writing about their experiences or the experiences of other people that they've heard about. It is their stories and their their narrative of their own experiences that I'm that I'm interested in. In the case of Jeanne Desanges, for example, I am um, looking at her autobiography mm-hmm. uh, that she, you know, how she is actually telling her story, um, how her confessor and exorcist was telling her story, um, how different medical doctors were writing to her. So I'm looking at everything from, you know. Uh, I mean, for so many of these chapters, I'm looking at everything from medical um, accounts to personal uh, autobiographical kinds of accounts to travel narratives, and then um, you know, thrown in there, um, several sources drawn from the archive and also drawn from you know outstanding scholarship that has already been done on these on these questions um, through archival sources as well. Mm-hmm. I, um, the thing that really interested me about tattoos, uh, especially perhaps in the pilgrim tattoo context, was that um, very few people actually talk about this. In other words, they, very few people actually talk about their experience of tattooing. We have a few really, in, at least in the French um, corpus uh, of travel narratives, you have a few people who will describe the process in detail, and those are Descriptions that I've that I've reported in my book, um, but very few people who actually talk about what their tattoo means to them. Which is, you know, something that we're quite used to. I think today is people having a narrative around around what their tattoo means. And so, in that respect, I, you know, was having to piece together sort of all these different um, sources uh, to try to conjure up or, you know, uh, try to, try to really get at some of the meanings that they were investing in their tattoos. And there are a few, a few, you know, scattered moments when people will say, you know, I felt this about my tattoo, or this is why I got the tattoo. But a lot of it is really deductive. Another thing that,
1: uh, struck me as I was reading the book and strikes me, you know, through our conversation is this period is one that, you know, we associate with this just explosion of print culture. And um, so you, you talk about how this book turned to the materiality of marking on skin, you know, after having already thought about and been, you know, steeped in that literature on the idea of inscription. And then I think about sort of more recent scholarship over the past decades on print culture and, you know, in, in, more recent print culture but then like reaching back centuries and i i was really struck by that the kind of intersection between these discussions of impression of marking of writing and what is a kind of revolution in reading writing um production of of print in this period and i just wonder if you have thoughts about like that and how that kind of converges with what you're doing
0: i i mean i think it's absolutely Um, essential to think about what is going on um, with the printing press and with this explosion of print culture um, that's going to be taking off then in the 17th century. Hmm. And this period that I'm focusing on is, is all about, uh, is all about print. Right. Um, And all the texts that I'm interested in are many of the texts that I'm interested in are, you know, being distributed and, um, and, and reproduced uh, thanks to this incredible, new technology, right? Um, For me, in thinking about marking skin uh, in relationship to all kinds of other marking practices, Mm -hmm. it comes up again and again that print and engraving in its own way as well it's all one big part of print culture mm. so so that so that seals and um, and uh, metal stamps uh, on um, merchandise that are produced uh, all that are um, uh, cataloged and, and categorized and, and kept track of um, by by the French state um, are, are all very much um, you know uh, a part of what I would sort of redefine as not only textual, you know, but, but, but also um, all different kinds of marking. I mean, and that's how I really think about print culture in this book Uh is not only what is being produced on the printing press, but, but this idea of imprinting as being an incredibly important uh, mechanism of control um, and uh, projection of identity, way of projecting identity in this period. So, I I sort of came up with my own definition of print culture for this book, yeah. and and um, and and really thinking about it in in those terms uh, as as one of many material kinds of practices that are you know proliferating and marking um, this period and this culture. Yeah, it's totally fascinating for me the way that notion of what print culture is
1: and what print is gets exploded through (laughs) this book. Something you just said made me think, and we're kind of, I've kind of lost the thread of the chapters per se, Catherine, but the other thing that runs throughout the book and comes up and sort of moves uh, to the, to the background a little bit, um, but is always there is the state, right? This Mm -hmm. emergent, you know, moving towards what we might call the modern state, right? And so by the end of it, you're really talking about you know, as somebody has written about the 19th century a tiny bit, like, you know, when people say technologies mm-hmm. of identity and <laughs> the carceral state and all of these kinds of things that by the end of the book, you're really focused on that question of how the state uses marking to to imprint, you know, people outside the law. And what we might start to see as more recognizable
0: in terms of a modern state apparatus that's using the body and marking I mean, in that final chapter, what was really important to me in thinking about branding was communicating this idea that um, for the practitioners of branding in, you know, beginning in sort of the mid-16th, um, you know, through the, through the 17th and 18th centuries, they really thought of themselves as being extraordinarily modern in using branding <laughs> of convicts. Um, this was part of an elaborate State system for tracking criminals. Now, you know, before fingerprints, DNA registries, all of that sort of thing, Mm. um, they really saw the brand on skin as this very useful administrative imprint. Um, So not as we think of it, perhaps today as this, you know, horrible torture, but this was just one of many, you know you you would be punished, you would be perhaps whipped or you know, uh, have to spend some time in the galleys. but then but but the the marking was really a purely administrative piece of of the punishment. You know, this accompanied also moves toward registers of criminals that were supposed to be copied and then distributed throughout the kingdom. Um, uh, there was all this idea of being able to track individuals, you know, this is the period that sees the advent of the passport, um, and that um, also have signs and seals upon them mm-hmm. to make them official, you know. So I, I think it really is, um, this whole marking culture really is part of um, the development of the modern state, uh, a state that can control uh, the movements, not only of goods, um, but also of people across its territories. As you close the book,
1: Catherine, I'm just wondering, you know, well, how you close the book, but also I can't help but, you know, want to do that modernists thing. <laughs> I want to drag you all the way to 2021. Um, although we've already talked about various kinds of comparisons or points of you know, commonality or difference between this context that you're dealing with and what more contemporary understandings of markings, tattoos, branding, all of those kinds of things might be. I wonder... Yeah. What do you think about the post-history in the book? Mm-hmm. Like what happens next in the, in the period? And I know I'm not asking you to, to write that whole book right now or to, okay. think about it, but, you know, how do you kind of imagine this period leading to, to whatever comes next in terms of, or is, or is this, this, the end of this period a kind of watershed? Do you think of it that way? And then, yeah, jumping ahead. I mean, it's, I'm just going to be honest. It's one of the reasons I, jumped at the chance to speak to Mm -hmm. you about this book, because I'm fascinated by, you know, contemporary practices in this regard. And, and yeah, if somebody who's interested in this is going to read this book, you know, would you hope that they might learn in terms of the longer view of these practices and how what's in your book might help us to think about what these things mean these days, let's say in the West, um, to use a lazy term?
0: No, I I mean, I think, just to answer the last part of your question first, mm. perhaps, one of the things that's been very important to me and to other scholars of tattooing or body marking more generally of the period that we're working on is, is trying to dispel uh, what... Um, some have called the, the, the Cook myth, um, this idea that tattooing, um, because the word tattoo appears in the 18th century for the first time in French and in English and other languages, that in, in the narratives of James Cook coming back from Polynesia and Bougainville in the, in the French context, um, that somehow, you know, body marking started as a, a an import um, from Polynesia, Polynesian practices uh, on the bodies of sailors, you know, that appeared uh, suddenly for the first time in Europe. and and it's just absolutely incredible how powerful that myth is mm-hmm. <laughs> when we're there's been so much amazing scholarship done. To dispel it and yeah. to show that body marking was actually something that Europeans uh, were engaged in um, from earliest times, but certainly throughout um, the early modern period, uh, long before the 18th century. Hmm. They didn't call it tattooing, they called it uh, pricking or they called it marking or pouncing, um, but they were definitely engaging in it early on. So I guess that's the biggest thing I think. Yeah. I hope that people, sort of, you know, the general reader out there who sees, this repeated over and over again Mm. in the popular press um, might understand or might learn from it. And then as far as the connections with today and tattooing go, I guess I should say that the running joke in my family during this whole time (laughs) I was writing the book uh, was like, what tattoo was I going to get when I was finally done? And? <laughs> uh, and and I will admit sheepishly that that has not happened yet, <laughs> um, but I've certainly developed a terrific appreciation for all kinds of body marking and, and, a really interest in why people choose to mark their bodies today, uh, as well. I mean, as someone who does not yet <laughs> bear any chosen marks on her body, I of hesitate to, you know, to to speak for for anyone today as to why um, uh, we have such propensity for for marking our bodies um, in our current culture. I um, I'm very cautious about that. That said, as I said earlier, I think many of the ways that early moderns invest their body uh, projects have, has, you know, have real resonance with the kinds of, uh, reasons that people cite today for tattooing, Mm. you know, this idea of reclaiming your body. Uh, And that happens in many different contexts. Uh, You think about women who suffer from breast cancer, who use tattooing as a as a reclaiming gesture. Mm -hmm. You know, prisoners uh, claiming their body as their own when they're in a situation of of incarceration where they do not have control over their body. Mm -hmm. All this idea around expressing identity and self-determination. There are also many tattoos today that are you know, use tattooing as a memorial gesture. Mm-hmm. We have a, a friend nearby here who, had, who tattooed, you know, the portrait of his brother who was lost in 9-11 mm-hmm. on his back. Even devotional gestures. There's lots of uh, Christians out there still using tattooing as a devotional gesture. I think mm-hmm. so. I think I think there's lots of resonances with um, the material that I'm looking at for a much earlier period. Totally. And so that that has been exciting to see. All the while being trying to be very careful about you know every period having its own context and own particular um, way of understanding and investing these kinds of marks with meaning. You know, I I, w- I do wonder whether you know, in this incredible proliferation of tattooing in particular, but body marking generally today, that there might be a similar drive from what we see in the early modern period, which was also a period of, you know, just sort of exploding of all sorts of, uh, uh, you know, traditional ways of, of being and, and seeing the world, um, just a very, a very, um, tumultuous kind of time of upheaval. I wonder if, you know, in our own, sort of fast changing and unpredictable world I mean this year has proven that Mm -hmm. um you know if, if there if there isn't also this sort of drive to create some sort of stability or anchor for personal identity um you know within the body itself
1: so Catherine there are so many more
0: questions I could ask you but I'll stick to just one what are you working on now so since Signing the Body came out, I've been busy working with historian Craig Kozlowski on an edited volume called Stigma, Marking Skin in the Early Modern World that has a wide geographical re- range and deals with lots of different kinds of skin marking in the, from the 16th through 18th centuries. We have con- wonderful contributors um, working on the branding of the enslaved. Um, we have an essay on stigmata, cosmetic beauty marks worn by French aristocrats, indigenous tattooing in the Philippines. So it's a really exciting collection of work. And um, I'm pleased to report that that will be coming out with Penn State University Press next uh, year in 2022 in their sensory history series. And I've been looking at early 17th century debates about skin color as a marker of difference. And I've also been working on theories around belief in the power of the maternal imagination to produce mm. infants who differ in skin color from their parents. Mm. And been thinking about both of those in terms of the French slave trade and interracial sexuality in the French Antilles. Well, I'm very excited to hear and read more about
1: all of that. Catherine, I just want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing
0: this wonderful book. Thank you so much, Roxanne.